please open your Bible at uh, Matthew chapter 1. And as you do, uh, just uh, letting you know, there's a, a phone that was found down the back somewhere, belongs to someone. Um, if this is yours, uh, get it off me afterwards. I hope it's on silent. How do you organise your day? How do you get everything done? Do you uh, work to a very tight schedule? Or do you just <clears throat> sort of take things as they come? At the end of most days, I tend to scribble a to-do list for the next day. Uh, it gives me some direction, it guides in decision-making, and it helps me with setting priorities. I'll be frank, up front, not everything on my to-do list gets done. The reality is that uh, some things get rolled over onto the following day, uh, and the following day. And what's really discouraging is when the list is longer at the end of the day than it was at the beginning. Some things on the to-do list are pretty simple. Write some emails, follow through on a decision. Other things are more extensive. Uh, prepare for a meeting, write a sermon, move house. Uh, when the list is complete, it's time to stop planning and start working. And the real joy of the to-do list comes when you're able to tick off or strike a line through those things that are now done. Something very satisfying about knowing that everything that you set about to do is now done, complete finished. If you read your Bible through systematically, you'll discover that throughout the Old Testament, God makes a wide variety of amazing promises. God spoke to the prophets and he told them what he would do. And we can think of the prophets as announcing God's to-do list. And that's our first heading for this morning. Of course, God's to-do list does not rise, arise from obligations that are laid on him. Nobody can tell God what to do, but God's to-do list arises from commitments that he makes freely and voluntarily. God has promised that he will do certain things. And because God is always faithful to his word, these things must be done. And by the time that we get to the end of the Old Testament, God's to-do list is quite long. And the New Testament then opens by reminding us of some of the people to whom God made some of his greatest promises. Matthew arranges his genealogy about of Jesus, genealogy of Jesus, into three groups. 
each group of being of 14 generations, beginning with Abraham and then David and then the exile, respectively. And in this way, Matthew focuses his reader's attention on three points during the Old Testament history and genealogy where God makes certain promises. Matthew wants us to know that the coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of things that God promised that he would do. If we look in verse 1, we see that Jesus is introduced as the son of Abraham. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 2,000 years before Jesus was born, God promised that his blessing would flow through Abraham to every nation of the earth. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God said to Abram, I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now Abraham at the time wondered how this would ever be, since at the time he had no children. But God stepped in and caused Abraham and Sarah to have a child in their old age, and the birth of Isaac was a miracle. But... God's promised blessing to the world did not come to the world through Isaac. So the promise to Abraham remained on God's to-do list. You notice in verse 1 that Jesus is also introduced as the son of David. David's place in the genealogy is mentioned specifically in verse 6. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God spoke to David about one of his descendants who would build a marvellous house to the glory of God's name. Furthermore, God promised to establish that son's throne and kingdom forever. And then God added, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now you remember that David's son Solomon did build a magnificent building temple to the glory of God's name. But Solomon did not fulfill God's great promise. His temple was eventually destroyed and his kingdom certainly did not last forever. So this whole business about building God a permanent house and establishing an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will never end, was added to God's to-do list. The third focal point in the genealogy is the exile. The carrying away into Babylon mentioned in verses 11 and 12, but underlined in the summary of verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And some of God's greatest promises in the Old Testament are associated with the exile, the Babylonian captivity. 
When God's people were in captivity, in the darkest hour of their existence, God promised that he would make a new covenant with his people. He would give his people a new heart. And God promised that through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, and through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. God promised to create a community of people who would live according to his law, not out of external obligation, but because of a heart's inner desires. And these promises were made about 600 years before the time of Christ. And during all of those centuries, these things remained on God's to-do list. Despite everything that God had done for his people throughout the Old Testament period, God's promises remain unfulfilled. God's blessing was still to come on all the nations of the earth. The kingdom that would never end was still to be established. The hearts of God's people were still to be renewed. By the end of the Old Testament story, there was a long list of things to be done. Which brings us to our second point. From verse 18 onwards, Matthew tells us how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Mary was found to be with child of the Holy Ghost. Joseph didn't know what to make of this until one night God spoke to him in a dream. He saw an angel, told him not to be afraid. Verse 21, he was to call Mary's child Jesus because this child would save his people from their sins. Then Matthew tells us, verse 22, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, that prophet being Isaiah, Chapter 7. In other words, when Jesus Christ came into the world, the things that God said he would do are done. And as you read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you find the same point repeated over and over and over and over again. If you look in Matthew chapter 2, We're told how Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt when Herod was searching for Jesus with intent of destroying him. Verse 15, Matthew explains that this flight into Egypt was in fulfillment of that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Prophet there being Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. It was as if this event, which had for a long time been on God's to-do list, It was now done. Tick. Done. In verse 23, the young family moved to a town called Nazareth. And Matthew explains that this happened, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Done. Chapter 4, verse 13. At the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Verse 14, Matthew reminds us that this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. 
Another thing on God's to-do list, done. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us about the first public event in Jesus' public ministry. Came into a synagogue. He opened the scriptures and read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He's saying, this is what God promised to do. And now it's being done by me. No wonder the people were astonished at his teaching. And this theme of God's promises being fulfilled runs through the four Gospels. And the detail is staggering. Even the enemies of Jesus, who had every interest in showing that Jesus was in no way the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic promises. They themselves found themselves even unwittingly playing their part in the demonstration of the fact that Jesus was Messiah, fulfilling Old Testament scripture. Judas betrayed Jesus. And the chief priest gave him 30 pieces of silver with which he bought a field. And Matthew reminds us, chapter 27, verse 9, that this was a fulfillment of what God had spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. When Jesus was on the cross, the soldiers took his clothes and divided them among them. Jesus had a seamless robe and so they decided to cast lots for it and whoever won, they got the robe. But the Apostle John wrote that this happened, quote, that the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. Prophecy of Psalm 22. Later, the soldiers came to break the legs of the three people who were crucified. They did this to hasten the dying process. They broke the legs of the criminals on either side of Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs, but instead they thrust a spear into his side. And again, John noted... That these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken, and another scripture that saith, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Scriptures in Psalm 34, scriptures Zechariah chapter 12. This theme of fulfillment is very, very important to those people who would question and doubt whether Jesus is really the promised Messiah. People who would question and doubt whether Jesus really is the saviour that God had promised from the beginning of time. Jesus, however, himself was in no doubt about that. Matthew chapter 5, if you're still in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 verse 17. Jesus said, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy but to fulfil. If you want to know who Jesus is, you need to understand that he is altogether different from Old Testament prophets or indeed different from any other religious leader who ever lived. If you were to attend the average course of, hist of the history of religion in a secular institution, you'd be told something like this, that Judaism stops with Moses and Christianity stops with Jesus 
And Islam stops with Muhammad. And the assumption is presented that Moses and Jesus and Muhammad are leaders to be compared as if their portraits belong together on the same wall. Many people see Jesus as just another great figure in a line of religious history. They see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Jesus and Paul and others continuing into, uh, continuing into contemporary times belonging to a class of great religious leaders. And people view these images in this gallery and people are left to draw their own conclusions about which one of them is the greatest. But Jesus Christ cannot be placed alongside other prophets or other religious leaders of history. The prophets announce God's promises. Every time they announce something about God's promise, God's to-do list gets longer and longer. And if Jesus were just a prophet, he would be limited, like all the other prophets were, limited to announcing more things that God needed to do. If Jesus were just a prophet, his coming would contribute nothing to getting things done. Now, of course, there have always been people who thought that Jesus is just one of the prophets. But Jesus himself made it very, very clear that we must not understand him in this way. I've come to fulfill the prophets, Jesus says. He did not come to make God's to-do list longer. Jesus came so that God's to-do list will, would be done. And the opponents of Christianity like, like to suggest that Christianity really is just a recent invention invented by a man called Jesus who lived about 2,000 years ago. And yet the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible goes back to the beginning of time, actually before time. And it tells us what God would do. And it tells us that God has fulfilled all of his promises through Jesus Christ. This is the uniqueness of Jesus. The prophets announce God's blessing upon all the nations of the earth. The prophets announce a kingdom that would never end. The prophets announce a new heart for God's people, but only Jesus is the fulfillment of those predictions. His portrait belongs alone on a totally different wall. And once we understand the uniqueness of Jesus, we will be able to grasp more clearly what he has done. Which brings us to point number three. When Jesus announced what would be accomplished through his ministry, he made it clear that he came not only to fulfill the prophets, but also the law. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. If the prophets represent God's to-do list, then the law, all the commandments given through Moses, including the Ten Commandments, these represent our to-do list. In the law, God tells us 
what he requires us to do. Now Jesus makes it clear that he did not come to abolish the law. He said the law of God will stand till heaven and earth disappear and that hasn't happened yet. So it would be a great mistake for us to think that God was concerned about the law and righteousness in the Old Testament, but somehow he changed his focus in the New Testament. It's all now about forgiveness and it's all about grace, as if it's something completely different. The Bible is one story. The Bible is one story. God has always been, always been gracious and forgiving. And his law stands forever. The moral law of God is still on our to-do list. But Jesus says that he's come to fulfill the law. In other words, he came to move the law from the to-do list to the done list. And he does this, does this in three ways. Firstly, by his, in his life. Secondly, by his death. And thirdly, through his people. God's law is not some arbitrary set of moral rules. But they are written as a description of God's nature, and character and glory. In other words, the reason we shouldn't lie is because God is truth. And the reason that we shouldn't commit adultery is because God is faithful. And the reason we should not murder is because life is a gift from God. The law tells us what God is like and describes God's calling on our lives. And Jesus came to live the life that God put on our to-do list. He lifted the words of God's law off the page and expressed them fully in a perfect life. And that's why Jesus could say in John chapter 14, verse 9, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person. And that's why Paul wrote that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the law, God tells us how he wants us to live in this world as those who are created in his image and likeness, or those that are his representative ambassadors. He said, in essence, this is on your to-do list. Now I want you to consider the long list of names at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. In fact, is none of them fulfilled the law of God. But when Jesus came, it was done. The law does more than just tell us the kind of life that God requires. It also announces the consequences of sin. 
That's why the Bible talks about the curse of the law. That's why the Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Yet, throughout the Old Testament period, God repeatedly postponed that condemnation. When Adam disobeyed in the garden, God was gracious to him, and though he was excluded from paradise, his life continued. Abraham told lies about his wife, but he remained the friend of God. David committed adultery and murder, and yet continued on Israel's throne. Isaiah confessed to being a man of unclean lips, but was still God's faithful prophet. None of them came under the condemnation announced in God's law. You have to ask the question, why? The answer cannot be that sin doesn't matter. Because the whole point of the law is that it does. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And Christ says that God's law still stands until heaven and earth is done away. The answer is that throughout the Old Testament time, God held back the condemnation of the law. He put off the day of judgment. He didn't cancel it altogether, but he did defer it. God said, in effect, we'll deal with that matter later. And he put the whole matter of dealing with the consequences of human sin on his to-do list. Now at this time of year, the windows of the shops in the malls regularly are filled with advertising, all of it enticing us to buy. Sometimes you'll see an advertising looks like this, nothing to pay until January next year. And it sounds wonderful, it's virtually free. And it is, until January next year, you get some kind of notification announcing the time of payment has finally come. The payment wasn't cancelled, but it was deferred, postponed. At some point, the bill has to be paid. And throughout the Old Testament, the sacrifices reminded the people of God that there would come a time when something had to be done. But the consequences of sin remain like an accumulating debt that would one day have to be paid. And then Jesus came. He said, I've come to fulfill the law, he said. That meant that not only would he do everything required through his sinless life, but it also meant that he would bear the condemnation of the law in his substitutionary death. That's why he had to go to the cross. God's time for dealing with the issue of human sin had, had finally come. On the cross, Jesus bore the consequences of human sin in his own body upon the tree. The just died for the unjust. And the judgment of God described in his law was poured out upon Jesus Christ and Jesus fully absorbed it and cried out upon the cross, it is finished. 
And at that moment, dealing with sin was struck off God's to-do list because now it was done. Done. That's why we don't have to offer sacrifices. When we come to the Lord's table, that is not a, another sacrifice, as if our sin still needed to be dealt with, but it's a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. It's a reminder about the death of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that it is done. This is also why we don't need to have a great big temple, because the way of direct access to God is now through his son by faith in Jesus Christ. It's done. All that we are reminded to do, sorry, all that remained to be do, to, to do throughout the entire period of the Old Testament has been fully and finally done by Jesus Christ. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, it says, Though millions of sacrifices have been offered, Yet nothing was done to purchase redemption before Christ's incarnation. But as soon as Christ was incarnate, the purchase began. And the whole time of Christ's humiliation, till the morning that he rose from the dead, was taken up with this purchase. Then the purchase was entirely and completely finished. As nothing was done before Christ's incarnation, so nothing was done after his resurrection to purchase redemption for men. Nor will there ever be anything more done through all eternity. As we follow the story of the Bible, we discover a, another way in which Jesus fulfilled the law, and that is through his redeemed people. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul wrote this. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Jesus came. To bring us a completely new life in which, through which, we will live out the righteousness of God's law. He died to bring us out of the condemnation of the law. And he rose from the dead to lead us into a righteous life. You know, over the years I have noticed that, a, that there's a bit of a pattern in my life. That uh, there are some things that get pushed to the bottom of my to-do list. And the things that get pushed to the bottom of my to-do list are the things that I don't, don't like to do or feel the things that I feel I can't do. And that's exactly our problem when it comes to the living out of God's righteousness. By nature, we don't like God's commandments. By nature, we just really can't do them. And so our instinct is to put those things on the bottom of the list of good intentions that can wait for another day. Jesus came to save us from that. He came to make us into the person that God created us to be. And he will do that by so working in our heart to give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And with that new desire, he also gives us the power of the Holy Spirit so that our life now moves in the direction of righteousness. 
You know, when I was about 17, I went on a holiday with 11 other men heading north. First stop was Coffs Harbour. Set up our tents in the camping ground at Park Beach and it rained 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 and rained and rained and our tent was like a sieve. Everything totally saturated. We might as well have not had a tent. We would have been drier if we just slept in the rain. And it was so bad, so bad that in the middle of the night some of us just ditched our tent and went and took refuge in a local high school on the concrete under an awning, but at least it was dry. What a miserable place Coffs Harbour is. And I thought I'd never be so too unhappy if I never went back again. Well, a few years later, the sun was shining on me uh, and I developed some very deep affections for a young lady from that town. And we were married in 1986 and I've enjoyed going to Coffs Harbour ever since. Something happened in my heart to change my desires. And when God's spirit begins to work in your life, something happens and you get new desires, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you'll begin to own the commandments of God on your to-do list. Now, you and I, no doubt, are a long way of fulfilling God's will and purpose for us fully, but there is a desire, there is a growing desire to make progress. And Jesus said, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. For those who've come to the position where they want what God wants for them, they will be satisfied. Their desire will be satisfied. Jesus died to save us from the condemnation of the law, and he lives to lead us into a new life in which... We fulfill the righteousness of the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ accepts us as we are, but he's not content to leave us as we are. It's God's purpose to make us righteous so that we will reflect his nature and character, his glory in the demonstration of righteousness. If you roll the Bible story forward, we learn that one day, very, very soon, the Lord Jesus Christ will return for us at the rapture. We'll be taken instantly into the Lord's presence. We'll stand glorified, finally, with Christ before the Father. And there Jesus will say, Behold, I am the children that thou hast given me. Hebrews 2.13 Not only shall we be with Christ, not only shall we see Christ, we will be like Christ, we'll bear the family resemblance. A day is coming in which God will take us off the to-do list and will be added to the done list. Finally done. This is why Jesus came. Jesus cannot be compared to Old Testament prophets or the prophets and leaders of any other religion. The prophets announced what God required. The prophets announced what God would do. And Jesus came to fulfill what was required. Jesus came to accomplish what God said he would do. 
He fulfills both the law and the prophets by delivering what was promised through them. All that God placed on his to-do list is done through Jesus Christ. Fulfilled. Finished. We can summarise it this way. Christ fulfills the law in three ways. Number one, by living a life that perfectly reflected everything required in God's law. Secondly, by absorbing the condemnation of the law for our sin through his death upon the cross. And thirdly, by making it possible to live a new life of righteousness in line with the law of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to demonstrate the law to us. He died to fulfill the law for us. And he lives to fulfill God's righteous laws in us. And brethren, we should be thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that the angels announced. The shepherds hastened to see with their own eyes. Thank you that they came to see Jesus, so named because he would forgive us of our sin. Nothing like that was ever said about anyone else. Thank you for all that Christ fulfills. Thank you that he is a perfect saviour for us. And Father, we rejoice in the person and the work of Christ today. Well, truly, this is good news. Lord, we're humbled to receive it. Lord, we're blessed to be entrusted with this message. We pray that you might help us to be like those who went on the way rejoicing and couldn't but keep the good news to themselves, but had to share it with others. Pray, Lord, that you'd help us in this. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live out that righteousness which tells others the good news of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. I'd like to invite uh, Gilmer to uh, lead us in the...